As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. On today's episode of 77 Minutes, we're talking to Saad Youssef about the play-in tournament where the Mavericks stand and Dirk Nowitzki. Son of Slovenia, cool as hell, he scores the ball Welcome to 77 Minutes, the Dallas Mavericks podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Tim Cato. I write and talk and think a lot about the Mavericks by way of my job, beat writer at the Athletic. We've got Mike Bellucci doing editing, writing stuff at the Athletic. Also thinking about the Mavericks as a large part of my job. Not all my job, but a lot of my job. Yeah. Dwelling on them, would you say? Ruminating. Ruminating. That's a good one. Yeah. And we've got uh we've got Saad Saad Yusuf, who is Dallas based, covering the Dallas Stars. This is not a Dallas Stars podcast, last I checked. Um I will check on that just to make sure, but I don't believe we are. But Saad knows a lot about the Mavericks. How 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 many how many Mavs games have you missed this year, Saad? <laughs> um I think I've probably missed to like three or four there's been because a lot of because a lot of the stuff i watched either the next day um and also part of my my radio job i have to be up to date with all of the sports and so don't miss many uh mavericks games well if you've missed three or four i'm not even sure we can continue this podcast that is you know an egregious overstep of a uh guest booking on our end um just got a little <laughs> glad we have a little Athletic Dallas love in the house here right now. You you guys can't see this podcast, uh, obviously, but Saad is the only one who looks like good in the pandemic right now. Tim's got this long hair thing going on. My beard is terrible. Saad's got the, the trim beard. The haircut looks nice. He's ready to go. He's ready to give Mav takes today. He's he's making up for his lack of net Mavs knowledge, those three <laughs> or four crucial games that he's missed. Um with with it with a clean shaven look or or a, you know a well shaven look I should say because it's not clean shaven no but he's sharp he's ready to get down look. a business man ready to yeah. get down a business 
No, dude, we're, we're glad to have you here. And and you were, you know, we're going to get to Dirk in the second half. It, it feels wrong to let the two-year anniversary of his final game go by without doing anything. We're a few days behind it now. But you and I were both at the final game. Uh, so with the second half of the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And you can, uh, yeah, final two games. That's right. That's right. But uh, we'll, we'll get there. Do you have any uh, general thoughts? Obviously, the Mavericks were winning. They were winning a lot. They had won 19 of 26. Um, then they lost three or four. Do you have any concern about the about the losses? The, there was a couple against teams they shouldn't have lost to, but I, I, as I wrote in an article that published Tuesday, it did feel like the San Antonio loss particularly was just a a good team, you know, whatever the Mavericks are, a good team having a good performance and a slightly worse team having a great performance. That one doesn't doesn't hugely concern me. And, and likewise, I don't know how you can get too upset about a Philadelphia loss without Kristaps uh, Porzingis playing. Um, whether you want Porzingis to be playing, uh, and I'm using the general you, not singling you out. That's a different story that, that you know, we've talked about on this podcast before. But generally, it does feel like the Mavericks are turning up and I want to see if you feel the same way. Yeah, I do. And I actually I actually don't feel that bad about the Houston loss either from what it means to the team. Now, in the standings, that's one that you don't want to lose, especially when you're trying to get it get out of that playing tournament spot and into the sixth seed. Um, but if you told me that they were going to lose against Utah, beat Houston, and then and then uh, and then lose to Milwaukee, even without Giannis, um, I'd be like, you know, that's Again, it's like, what does that really say about the Mavericks, that they're better than Houston? Like, that's not the bar, and that's not what... So, it, you know, I'd rather a good team have a dud and still beat Utah and, granted, without Giannis Milwaukee. Um, I'd rather, those in those three games, I'd rather they go 2-1 and one and beat those two teams and have a dud against Houston as opposed to beat Houston and lose against Utah or Milwaukee. And then they're really pretty much just a middling team whereas at least when you beat the best team in the conference and the top team on the other uh, in the other conference you at least have an encouraging sign so the losses don't concern me a ton because uh, Tim as you put it and I agree with this as well uh with the loss against San Antonio that's a top five game that Luca and KP have played together in my opinion and and you know I've watched uh, covered a lot of it and and that's one of the best games that they've played together again no one thought this team is going to compete for a championship this year. So you're looking for how this team is gelling, what they're looking like, and they've looked pretty good. I think that all seems fair, doesn't it, Mike? I knew we brought Saad on for a reason. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, of course, it's it's all a matter of perspective, right? Because I like the way Saad put that in terms of framing Houston within uh, the Milwaukee, the Utah games, because there are definitely some people that could instead start the sample size at Houston and go through last night and say, well, that's three or four. It's all a matter of perspective, right? I mean, look, is Houston a game that should have won? Yeah. But was Utah a game that should have won? I don't know. There was some shot luck playing into a bit of that, right? So I think the common denominator with where I'm at and where I think probably all three of us are is that, you know, it's about big picture growth. And it's about if we've learned anything about this team this year insofar as we could take this season and all of its anomalies seriously, it's that on the right night, this team can beat anybody legitimately beat everyone, right? Not just luck into, oh, it's a schedule win. That's why we beat Utah. But no, like you could beat them. The next step is, can you beat these teams four times out of seven? We're not there with a lot of these Western Conference teams yet, but last year, I wouldn't have said that some of these teams it could have been once. So it's all moving in the right direction. And we'll have plenty of time this summer to talk about 
how you really take the next big step up. But right now, yeah, when I see a win over Utah, I think, good. That shows me they can beat the best team in the NBA right now, the way they're structured. They beat Milwaukee, albeit without Giannis, but still, okay. That wouldn't have been a bad loss, as Saad said, even if they lost that game. But the fact that they won it showed, okay, you probably should beat a team without Giannis, even if they're good. And they did. Great. Did they lose a bad game? Yeah, every team in the league loses bad games. It's not ideal with where their positioning is right now, but if they get out of the playing round, we won't remember that Houston loss. That's really what this will come down to. No one will remember that Houston game if they get to the sixth seed or higher. If you consistently, would you rather consistently beat bad teams or inconsistent or, you know, always have a chance against great teams? Yeah, I think I think you're always picking the second one. I think that's a fair point. So, so yeah, you, you want consistency from the Mavericks and it's frustrating to see uh, players sit out when the standing race is as tight as it is but you know uh, functionally we've had this discussion before we've talked about why players are sitting um i think it's fair to disagree with it but i i think that there's some validity in that and even before the season it felt like we were talking about should porzingis rest every back-to-back i didn't think they'd actually go ahead and do it but now that they're doing it and you know this is this is not coming out of nowhere so a lot of this has kind of been framed in the discussion of the play-in tournament and and Mark Cuban had some quotes to ESPN's Tim McMahon uh, after last night's loss, I should say, uh, about that. And, and Luca, they, they kind of stemmed off Luca's own comments about the play in tournament not making sense. Briefly, before we go deeper into this, do you like the play in tournament? Do you think it adds entertainment? Do you dislike the play in tournament? Do you think it's competitively unfair to teams that do play a 72 game season and do finish in the top eight in their conference? Saw it first. Um, I, I don't hate it. I mean, I, I don't I don't think I'm a huge fan, but at the end, but it comes down to two things. One, first of all, all these leagues, the NBA included, they're gonna do what where the money goes. So the money, the money says that this stuff is gonna create bigger interest, bigger games. We've seen it in baseball, obviously, with the way they do their uh one game. So I, I think that from that perspective, I totally get it. And then the second thing is a lot of people brought this up and I think it's totally fair. Like Luca would be singing a different tune if they were the 10th best team in the conference right now. He he probably would be fine with the playing tournament. So I, I think it's all about a matter of perspective. Um, and then also if you're going to go, if you're going to be the number seven, n- number seven seed in the conference, and then you go, Oh, and two, you probably didn't have that much of a chance against the top team anyways, right? Like if you can't beat two teams that were below you in the standings, like at that point, you know, what 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 was this about regardless of whether you had the playing tournament or not? So I don't hate it. Um I, I agree with, you know, what 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 Cuban told Tim McMahon kind of almost like was against his own argument because he said players are gonna play harder and play better. And it's like, isn't that what the NBA wants? That that you want less load it's management. So hard. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's like they're, they're we're we're not gonna be able to manage now. Again, the schedule is so compressed in this COVID season, so I understand what Cuban is saying, but it's also what the NBA wants is more competitive games, superstars playing on a nightly basis, resting as less as possible. So really, I mean, it kind of it kind of plays into favorably uh, the playing tournament. The counterpoint to losing two games and that meaning you don't deserve it is that there's so many variables. A a simple ankle sprain in game one could just ruin, you know, in the first quarter of game one, all of a sudden you lose both games. And even though that ankle sprain would have recovered over a seven game series, let, you know, let's say it's Luka, 
you know, that that might tank your hopes right there. Now, the counter counterpoint to what I just said is that yes, most one eight two seven first round series are not competitive. It is very rare for those to result in upsets. It does happen sometimes, but for the most part, they're they're not. You know, I think the Mavericks, if they did end up as a seven eight seed, would be one of those seven eight seeds capable of that. But for the most most part, they are. So there's a lot of a lot of strands in in things going in different directions and arguments. Mike, how do you you know juggle all these different factors about where the NBA should land on this stuff? I mean, I think Saad said it right, and you wrote it this morning, Tim. It's gonna go where the money's gonna go. I do think I would be a little more like down with the play in tournament if they just did one if they just seeded one through twenty, regardless of conference, versus, you know, if, if you this is really about let's get the best teams in, let's have some drama. Okay, then do that. Don't just and do And that's what Cuban suggested. Right. To, uh, yeah, to and I am sympathetic today. to that argument. I mean, the other aspect too is like you're not wrong that, you know, if you're if you can't win as a seven seed twice, uh, you're probably not putting much of a dent in a two seed. But okay, let's if we're gonna go with the money argument, let's follow the money. You're playing your playoff shares, which you've gone through an entire in a normal season you go through an 82 game gauntlet. In this season, it's 72, but it is so compressed, right? There are teams playing you know five games in seven nights. This this season is brutal. We all know this. So if you're a player and if you're Luka Doncic. And you are going through this grind of a year, which started before you realized it was even going to start, right? They're not giving you a lot of communications. Just, hey, get ready. Season starts Christmas Day. Have fun. And then you're just going nonstop. You're playing on this team because the league got it a little bit better as far as how to handle COVID protocols later on. But in the beginning, when Dallas had its outbreak, it's tough. Go out there and play. So you go through a season that you didn't know was going to start when it did. The games are compressed. You're playing through the COVID outbreak. Night in, night out. And then you go. And you are told that this could all be undone because you have a bad two games after everything you just did for five long months. Oh, and by the way, your playoff shares, which are, you know, it's not a small amount of money, are also tied to that. Yeah, we want to think that it's just about winning a championship. And for these guys, it is. But money's involved, too. All the, you know, everything that you've done over the course of a full season comes down to a small sample. I can see why he's pissed. That makes a lot of sense to me, you know. And as somebody who enjoys... The NBA, I think one of the best things the NBA has going for it, say what you will about, you know, there's an argument for parity and excitement. You know, that's the NFL model, right? Any team could win any year. There aren't dynasties. The NBA, it's a lot more predictable. But part of the charm of the NBA, and hockey has this too, and baseball used to have this, but it's less so because they did expand the playoffs, is this idea that the last team standing a lot more often is actually the best team. There is definitely a way, it happens all the time in the NFL, for not the... The team that wins isn't always the best team. Baseball, the team that wins isn't always the best team, especially now that the playoffs got expanded. In basketball, it's hard to hide. And as someone who enjoys the full season and the full grind of that, whatever you could facilitate to make that happen, to say that the regular season does matter, uh, the full playoffs do matter, that to me is an argument in favor of keeping structured the way it was, especially because, God, this this league already has a regular season problem, right? This league already, over the last several years, when guys sit out of the rest games, and I understand it, it's a pragmatic decision. It's what you probably should do in the bigger picture if the goal is to win. But if you're the NBA and you're saying your regular season matters, really, guys, it totally matters. Just ignore guys sitting out. And then you do have two teams that have scrapped to get to the 7-8 seeds that it could potentially be undone in 48 hours. Well, did their season matter? What was the point of all of this if... Five months of work can get undone by a bad small sample. So I am sympathetic to where Doncic is coming from. I like the idea of the play-in tournament. 
I would like it better if it's implemented, you know, going one through 20 versus just by conference. But when Luca's sitting there, would he have changed his tune if they were, you know, in the 10 seed? Maybe, but I, that doesn't mean his arguments are wrong. That doesn't mean his arguments don't have a point. Yeah, one, one real quick thing that I'll and add to that is the fact that what Mike said about the playoffs, the NBA and NHL both already have the least ex- exclusive playoff uh, playoff pools. 53% of the teams already make the playoffs as it is. Um, and, and it's and it's a lot less in other leagues. So um, I, I would say that now that, that, that percentage goes even higher. Yeah, and sorry, I don't have to button back into here, but like if the other thing too is like if the argument is, well, it's not like an eight or a seven wins one versus two matchups that often. You know why that doesn't happen anymore? Because they got rid of the five game opening round and for the sake of two more playoff games for money. So there is a way to make the first round matter a whole lot more. They're just not interested in doing that because it suits their financial needs. Same deal as this tournament is rooted in the same thing. It's it's more entertaining. It's more ratings. I see why that is, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's better for the game. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a takey guy. I I prefer to do what I think Mike just did well is just kind of lay out all the factors and the influences. If I had to boil down to a singular take on this, it's mostly just that there are worse competitive disadvantages that the NBA forces players and teams to suffer through without that even being really in the discussion. Nobody talks about whether back-to-back should even exist. And there's more of them than ever this season. Um, granted, because of the extraordinary circumstances and, and the NBA has made a dedicated push to reduce those. But I just think that functionally, the play-in tournament uh, offers more entertainment than disadvantage comparatively. Whereas there's other things players and teams uh, have to go through throughout the course of a full NBA season um, that I think are... are- like a... Like a- well, like an like an NBA like All Star game in the middle of a pandemic, or you know, um, like like you said, playing back to backs and things like that. It's all about the money. All those things are just about you know what's going to be the biggest financial advantage. Yeah, I think I think functionally those those are all things, and, and just an overextension of of players in general, which which I think there's proof there's there's numerical proof behind this that it makes the product worse over time. That that an, an excess of games and travel. Uh, wears players down to a point that it it becomes less fun to watch and stars get injured more often. And that functionally at its core level is what makes the NBA more competitively unbalanced uh, than than, you know, a, a kind of a gimmick, but a but a play in tournament at the end, which is a, a competitive disadvantage all the same. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Thank you. Appreciate it. As you would think, um, amazing that my my heroes came out here uh, for this game. So, thank you guys so much. Love you guys. Grew up grew up watching you and idolizing you guys. So this this means more than you'll ever know. Uh, Mark, can't wait to see what you got for my jersey retirement. I mean, this is this is uh, this is a high bar you're setting. Uh, but, uh, as you guys might expect, uh, this was my last home game. Um, uh, yeah. I'm trying my yoga breathing, but it's not really working that well. Let's talk about Dirk a little bit. And and like we were saying at the top, it's it's roughly two years since his final game, which final games, we'll say, which he played against uh, Phoenix and then San Antonio, down in San Antonio. I was at both of those games. Saad was at both of those games as well. Uh, we both covered them for the Athletic at the time. What comes to mind for for you, Saad? Which are the lasting memories, or you know, if you have one or two specifically that uh, that that you remember from that? The overarching one, I guess, comes from the San Antonio game. What just just watching Popovich waving off the defender to give Dirk some space to shoot the ball. Um, I think that was probably that's probably one that comes first. But the entire home game extravaganza was just so well done. I think oh, everything from. You know when when the uh, NBA legends all came out after the game, that was that was absolutely incredible. Um, and then you know just when Dirk finally, when Dirk finally said that he was done at, at the AAC, that was a remarkable moment as well because everybody in the building knew already going in that he was done, but there was still the chance for one more year. And then when he said that he was done, there was like a gasp. And then there was just this wave of applause, just, you know, a quick disappointment, but then acknowledging just the greatness of the past 21 years. I, I remember that distinctly because I did not think he was going to say it. I didn't think yeah. he was going to say it at that moment. It felt almost, I had convinced myself in my head that the only way that he would go out was a quiet Friday night press release or or something to that effect, just because of how little he, all you know, he never wanted the attention on him. And maybe even in that moment, it felt. And, and looking back on it, I, I think that he realizes he's always been someone who's recognized what fans and fan bases mean. And I think in he, in that moment, he was like, "I owe it to them 
to 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 have this moment to to have this uh, you know this this finality presented right now to give them you know to give everybody who who spent money and time and just made sure to have tickets for this game in case this was the final home game for him you know i I think it made sense for him to give all those people in that arena a moment uh to to celebrate him but i had convinced myself that he just wasn't going to say it then he wasn't going to say it right at that moment and and so there really was that pause and that shock just to process what he said before it did change to uh what what it was like you're describing the the applause and the you know just the just the gratitude, I think, a, a like a verbal and visual and and just sixth sense of a gratitude that that can't quite be described, but but absolutely was there. Yeah, and I think the other thing was also just the overall environment in the building. It, it's only comparable to, I would say, you and I were both at this game as well, Tim. Uh, the the thirty k game, you know, when when you know something is coming, and the entire for the first quarter the entire crowd is just, you know, standing up with every shot attempt and everything. But in the 30K game, that was obviously only for like one quarter. This was for four quarters consistently for the entire game. And I think that was that was absolutely incredible. That just, to, just to feel that energy, it's something that's just so unique and you can't really, um, you can't really describe it fully unless you were actually there just because like it's just, it, it really was kind of indescribable. So I wasn't there. I was in uh, this is about a month before. How dare you, honestly? Get <laughs> off even, this podcast. Do you even like Dirk? I wasn't even in the country. I was in Tokyo. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah, not okay. Is... I met I met someone in San Antonio from Tokyo who was at who, the, okay, the San Antonio <laughs> game, both games. So I just, I don't see, you know, either you guys traded places and it was like somebody <laughs> had to be there and somebody had to be here. Um, yeah, or no. really, you just have no excuse. You could have pilgrimage back. So <laughs> no, I, I I legitimately was in Japan. This was I was working a job uh, about a month before I came here. Um, but when I heard that he did say it, it didn't surprise me because I think the power of Dirk and I wrote about it then for the step back when I wrote Freelance. Um, there's an excellent book that's going to come out next month uh, by Zach Crane over at D Magazine. Um, called I See You Big German, which is an amazing title for a Dirk book. Uh, and we'll have an interview with him on the site tomorrow. But it's very much about Dirk and Dallas. And I think Dallas is such a key component to Dirk's story. Um, the magic of Dirk, especially if you are here, it really only is partly tied to what he did. It's that he did it in this place. Like, you know, if he did the same stuff, but he did it in LA as a Laker, it wouldn't have meant as much because that was expected. It is not expected for him to have done what he did, uh, not just for this franchise, but for the city and to make this city home and to stay here and to really love this place and to make this his place. So I figured he would say something. Um, just, But this was me not being around the team every day like you guys were. I was looking at a little more detached at that point, being in the market, but not necessarily around the Mavericks as much. But I figured you were not say the something. only esteemed podcast host of a Mavericks uh, podcast. This is before in, in we became before we wiped out all other competition. It became the only okay. Dallas Mavericks okay. podcast in existence. Okay, that's fair. Um, that's fair. Yes. Uh, so it to me, I figured he'd say something because he. I think he knows, right? I think he knows. He's a he's a humble guy. I don't think he likes to flaunt how much he means to this place, but he knows. And I think it would be very inauthentic to who he is as Tim is saying, not to recognize that. And that's not to say, you know, for instance, Tim Duncan went quietly into the good night in San Antonio. That's not to say that San Antonio doesn't mean something to Tim Duncan after all the time he played there, but it was never as overt, right? 
And it also, you know, the flip side of that is Wade goes out the same time as Dirk and Wade is just a much more, just a bigger presence. He's always been that guy in front of the camera. So of course there was going to be the retirement and of course there was going to be the announcement and of course there was going to be the big night. We all knew this was going to happen. That was just very true to who Dwayne Wade is. That's not good or bad. That's just what it is. But I think it was very true to Dirk that not only was he honored, that he didn't run from being honored, right? If he ran from being honored, he would have stayed in the shower after they won the championship. He wouldn't have come back out because he knows, yeah, it was for himself, but deep down he knows what he means to people and he wants to honor that. And I think it was very true to form that, hey, not only did the franchise do right by him, that not only did the city show up for him, but that he you know, was honest about things, that he gave everybody a chance to say goodbye because that is who he is. He's someone who knows his place in the city and is very appreciative of that. Yeah, Dirk Dirk was so selfless that, you know, he would put aside his his uh introversion and put aside his reluctance to take center stage to take center stage when he needed to, when he recognized in moments that this is bigger than me, this is bigger than what I would naturally be comfortable with. And and I do think that is a that is a testament to to him as a as a person. Um and it's not even, you know, it's it's we're still talking about sports. It's it's not you know, but but it it did it did show he was uh, self aware. He was very self aware of what he represented and what he meant. I think the the Tim Duncan example is is a good one. Uh, I don't think it's a knock on Tim Duncan that that he was even you know that he wasn't the same way. But he was someone who you know he probably knew what he represented. But I don't think there was moments where he was like you know they they can they can embrace me as I am. And, and that's I again I think I'm I'm not trying to you know I'm not trying to pit these two people against each other I think it's Duncan had his own way of doing things and it was different in San Antonio and that's fine Dirk I think recognized that that because of what he represented he had to be more or that he there there was moments he should be more and he chose to accept that even though that wasn't in his nature um, and I think that's a that's a cool factor of of who he was and what he represented to the city. Um, like you said, and and I would co-sign also Zach Zach Crane's book is it's going to be excellent, and everybody should read it. Yeah, and and to piggyback on that again, not to turn this into a Dirk versus Duncan thing, but Duncan was was one of a three head, you know, like that like that era of San Antonio basketball is always going to be Duncan Parker and Ginobili, whereas whereas like you know Dirk's time with Nash was cut short. Um, I mean, maybe you you put Terry there with Dirk, but but really, this, this was Dirk's era. This was Dirk, Dirk Nowitzki basketball was what this was. And that doesn't look. Tim Duncan was the face of the of that big three, no doubt about it, and um, and like probably the biggest part of it. But he was still part of. It. And then also Greg Popovich, right? Like Greg Popovich is also just such a huge figure. Whereas Rick Carlisle wasn't even there for the first half of Dirk's career. So I mean, Dirk. That and then that's and then the other thing about that is also, you know, when you look at those two and and how you how they kind of went away, San Antonio was in the playoffs. That entire year became about Dirk and about Dirk's send off. Like we we're talking about the last game because obviously the anniversary was just really recent and everything. But I think the biggest thing uh, from that entire season that stands out to me was Doc Rivers and the way that he did that. You know, with what he did with Dirk, I think that entire season just became so much about Dirk's send-off, whereas that was never really the case with Duncan because San Antonio made it to the playoffs and everything like that. And again, Duncan was part of one of three, and Popovich was there the whole time and, and all this kind of stuff. So I think 
two very different situations, but everything that night was, and then the next night in San Antonio as well, was just extremely special and very well done all around. I mean, I might push back a little bit on Duncan not being as important as Dirk. You know, remember Duncan won with that first ring with David Robinson or David Robinson, right? Like I, Tony Parker and Manny Ginobili were very good players, but they're not sniffing a championship if Tim Duncan ain't around. Um, no, but, but I'm talking about the era of basketball, right? Like that era is is more known as the Duncan Ginobili Parker. It's not. It's not just Tim Duncan alone. I would say. I think those two. I think those two gave him a little bit more room to step back. They the did do that. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely freed him up to be Tim and not be the face of it. I don't know. It's hard to say too, because like we, we are not from San Antonio. We know the league, but it's hard for us. Anybody who's outside the city to explain Duncan's importance, the way that we understand Dirk's importance here. Well, for, for that reason is, is why we should pivot to the, to the last thing I wanted to bring up, which is just the aesthetics of those, those last two uh, games, the ridiculousness that someone like Yogi Ferrell and Nicholas Persino are celebrating with, with Dirk and in these timeout scrums after he hits another shot, even the shots he took, I, I'm rereading an article, a conversation Saad and I had uh, last year on the first anniversary. And, you know, I, for this article, I'd rewatched all 50 points he scored in the final two games. And just to kind of list the, the shots he hit, he had a trailing top of the key three pointer. He had a turnaround bank shot from the post. He had an elbow jumper off a pin down screen. He had a catch and shoot baseline 15 footer. And he had a, uh, a two-footed post move in the lane. Um, you know, long two-pointers. He had the, the tongue wag out. He had the European three-point finger gun. Every, everything was there. Even the mouth guard. Even popping the mouth guard halfway out of his mouth. Even while, a dunk. Smiling. Like, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> he wasn't known for the dunking. But yes, it was, it was nice to get one less dunk as well. Because those, those are always celebrated and always, you know, just a, you know, a magical moment uh, throughout the 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 dirt career for someone who probably had maxed out at probably 120 of them, 110 of them throughout his, you know, 32,000 points or whatever it is. Uh, so, so I thought that was the coolest thing, both the, the anachronistic nature of, of what those team rosters were that, that almost nobody was left with them uh, that had really been there for the entire journey. Um, except for Devin Harris of all people, JJ Barea was still around and, and, you know, he was there for a, for a solid half of it. And then, and then you know, players like Brasino, that's always hilarious to me. I need to eventually write a story about that. But then just the, the joy of those last two games, I think really providing the closure that was needed, that was wanting, that was hoped for, to go to the ever-to-use cliche. If you were to script that, I think it would look a lot like those last two games. Also, shout out Jamal Crawford, 50 <laughs> points in the but, home yeah. closure. The quietest 50-point <laughs> game ever. maybe ever. Yeah, um, I don't even know if it was quiet. I I was intensely aware that he, he was intensely doing that. aware, but <laughs> and nobody like, is ever going to remember that game. Who wasn't if, if in the he building had, that if night, he had, or Jamal Crawford? If you were Jamal pushed, Crawford's family, you remember that game. <laughs> he almost dragged it back to a to a win to a for a son's win, and that would have been such a strange <laughs> capper. Um, I have. But I have. Do you remember? So the one the, oh, shouting oh, about one thing the the one memorabilia uh, memory memorabilia. Oh man. Belia, there it is. Belia, I'm gonna. This is why I edit I him, people. This is why I'm here oh, to I'm edit. Never, I don't like that. Uh, the one sports memorabilia that I have is I framed the box score from that game, almost just as a historical marker. I handed it to some friends too, and it, you know, it's it's just the the fact that I was there and and could say. I you know I watched Jamal Crawford score fifty in in the in the closure of Dirk's career 
it's just a wild memory that that I have to have proof of uh, later in my life. Do you do you remember Tim Dirk shouting out Jamal Crawford afterwards and then the crowd booing him? Um, Dirk was like Jamal almost stole my show, scoring fifty points, and then the crowd started booing. <laughs> I don't actually remember the booing. I do. But that's, I, that I don't remember the booing. I mean, I remember rewatching it recently, but I do remember him shouting out, which is a very Dirk thing. I mean, I, I think. It was, as Tim said, you know, if it was just Dirk gunning away, it wouldn't have felt right. But it was just, it was so much, everybody was having fun and it wasn't serious. And there were so many little things that I think nothing will ever approach Kobe's last game as far as just a perfect encapsulation of of a single player in one farewell performance. That was, Kobe's last game was the most Kobe thing in the history of Kobe things. Uh, But after that, I think Dirk's was the best one. And, you know, and the thing that stands out to me when we, it was just part aesthetic and part moments. It's not something we saw in the broadcast, but something I remember reading afterwards was just, you know, we talked about how few people were left. Well, Cuban was the last person left of them. And there was that moment where, you know, Dirk couldn't really get up much anymore. Somebody had to help him up off the floor to get into games. And somebody always did. And the last time in San Antonio before he checked in, Cuban was the one that did it. And that was the, that was the part that always stands out to me that, Okay, it had to end that way with Mark probably being the guy to help him in one last time. So I thought that was pretty no perfect. All of it was, you know, short of Kobe just being maximum Kobe. This was about the the best way any athlete has gone out uh, at that level. Yeah, that's, that's great. I don't think I'd ever even noticed the the Cuban uh, part of that. Saad, do you have any parting thoughts? Yeah, just uh, we talk a lot about like, you know, who wasn't there uh, from his past and everything like that. But I think almost just as important is who was there in transitioning to the next era because Luca was there for that. And I think what I, I, I forgot what part of the broadcast it was because obviously we were there watching it live, so I didn't catch it live. But then when I rewatched it, I remember Dirk like made a shot and you just see Luca in the background just like jumping like a little kid um, and, and like hooting and hollering. Um, and remember, at this point, he is a 20-year-old kid at that point watching this 19. happen. I think. Was he 19? Uh, he was 19, 20, anyway. 20, by, 20 at that point. Yeah, he was, he was 19 okay, coming Okay, you're in. right, you're right, my fault. Right, and so like he was he was just a kid and like, you know, for him to to see all that, to be part of all that and to just that perfect ushering in of, you know, you saw the Dirk leaving and Luca coming in. Um, even KP was there, um, if I'm not mistaken. No, maybe KP wasn't. Um, he... he yeah, he was. He was he there, was right? There. He didn't play. Yeah, he didn't play, I, but he was there. I remember wondering, I remember thinking that if he did play one game at the end, it really right. would be the perfect symbolic thing. But no, he was there. Yeah, he was there. So it, it was also, you know, as many people as weren't there, it was also about who was, and Luca was there. And I think that's just really significant for all that to happen in the way that it did. It was always really refreshing that it, it was a great marketing thing of, you know, oh, the, the first great, you know, the big European great leaves, the next European great comes. And, you know, and for tomorrow's piece on the site, like Zach and I talk about this, why I don't think it's as perfect a comparison as some people make it out to be. But like the part that I always enjoyed, and I think the part that always was nice was that, yeah, the franchise is going to hype it up and hype the connection. But Luca really did love playing with Dirk. Like it meant something to him. This wasn't just like some kid coming in and be like, oh, great, the franchise legends here. I got to be nice to him, but this is my team. He legitimately loved it. And I mean, Dirk being Dirk, he loved it too. I mean, there's some great footage. I don't remember seeing it at the time, but right around All-Star Weekend, 
it came out about um you know their their weekend their all star weekend together where Dirk was at the game and coaching and there's the two of them walking in the hallway and Dirk's you know in his suit bringing his home cooked meal with him like always he's like I brought my little guy with me and <laughs> Luke is just eating it up and you're about to play the rookie game he's like I'm gonna go eat a cheeseburger and Dirk's like you're eating a cheeseburger what are you doing you know it's oh just, to be young again or he said something right. like that he's like he's gonna be 19 is what he <laughs> yeah. said. Uh, but it, it, for as many things as franchises will market about themselves, and they should, that's what they're there for, but that wasn't fake. That, Doncic really enjoyed playing under Davitsky. Davitsky really enjoyed having Doncic there. And that's a really cool aspect that it wasn't just, okay, this is the, the way the transition will go, but that both were very invested in sort of overlapping with each other the way that they did. Yeah, when it comes to perfect symbolic endings and, and outros, the idea that the next part of the franchise or the next the next step of the franchise, the next franchise player was already there, you know, passing, you know, passing the ball to him, you know, recording assist with him, all these things. And just that, that they, you know, Luca was there and you even said like Kristaps was there on the side that that symbolism, you know, makes it even more perfect. And I, and I do think, you know, other than than Kobe's, it's. It's right there. Those those two games are right there with any any players' outros uh, that it, that it, that I've ever witnessed in the NBA. So, on that note, I was going to hit somber, not somber. You know, bitters, bittersweet. Yeah, bittersweet maybe. Um, but but certainly a an enjoyable look back on a on a on a player who meant so much to to pretty much all of us here in Dallas. Uh, I think we're gonna close it out, and we'll be back next week. It's been Tim and Mike and Saad. Thanks for listening. Don't fight the future. Please be nice to Luca. Future four-time MVP. Oh, my God. Shut it down. Let's go home. (laughs) It's a wrap, Doug. That is a wrap.